glanced at the list running over names, probably misspelled, that meant nothing to me, with my hand on the butt of my right hand gun. That one now contained a very special load. According to Vernet, there was only one sure way to kill a skin man, with a piercing object of the holy metal. I had paid the blacksmith in gold, but the bullet he made me, the one that would roll under the hammer at first cock, was pure silver. The scene is from The Wind Through the Keyhole, a 2012 Stephen King novel. It's not unheard of for the horror-slash-fantasy master's characters to call on Silver to battle something from the dark and murky gray from his 1986 novel, It. But that, of course, is only a joke and not a very good one. There's only one story left, at least one he remembers, and that is the story of the Silver Slugs, how they were made in Zach Denbro's workshop on the night of July 23rd, and how they were used on the 25th. A great yarn, to be sure, but as members of an advanced civilization, we know there's nothing in the shadows with blood-red eyes and tentacles. Then again, that's precisely why Count Dracula moved to cosmopolitan London in Bram Stoker's 1897 classic. You see, the superstitious peasants of Transylvania knew the preternatural was real. Not so post-enlightenment England, where mucus-oozing pores and frightful claws were disclaimed. And what better place to hide disgusting aberrations but in the shadows of denial and willfully forgotten knowledge. Today, enlightened monetary scientists placate us with soothing expectation policies that the shadows harbor no ill-proportioned beasts. But supposing there were, is there a silver bullet we could roll under the hammer? In part two of this, the 62nd episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder discusses one candidate, the Eurodollar futures market. But first, two researchers for the Federal Reserve uncover the horror of quantitative easing. Then, we conclude with the fantasy of government stimulus. Securities lending. It's in the news lately, and not for good reason. It's royal the markets, and I can't think of a better person to talk to about securities lending and what it means than Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, good morning. Nice to see you again. Good morning, Emil. We're going to be talking about an essay that you wrote for Real Clear Markets that was posted on the 12th of March, 2021, and it's titled Seeing Interest Rates counter to what they actually are. And we're going to start with money dealers. And you, you ask that question, Jeff. You, guess, you say, to begin, piece, ugh, to begin piecing together the answers, we have to start first with money dealers. Can you explain to us here that they intermediate in money markets and money markets? And I understand what each of those individual words mean in isolation, but can you help us what does it all mean when you string them together like that? Well, I think we have to be clear, first of all, what we're talking about. Now, money dealers is a much broader concept than maybe perhaps 
people are familiar with the term primary dealers, maybe even think about primary dealers when you hear the word money dealer or hear the term money dealer. We're talking about money dealers in a broader sense. Uh, primary dealers are just the banks that are that have been privileged to do business with the Federal Reserve. And that includes U.S. subsidiaries of foreign banks because we do have a global monetary system. Now, what we're talking about here, and usually when we specifically reference money dealers, is is any banks that participate in these markets and do some of these activities. It doesn't matter if they're transacting with the Fed or not. And it doesn't have to be domestic subsidiaries of foreign banks or even just US banks. It can be any bank around the world that operates in these offshore markets that have a brass plate in the Cayman Islands down by you, for example, Emil. It's, it's anybody who has the ability to transact with other banks in that offshore marketplace and to provide them with money dealing functions. As, as the term itself implies, money dealing and functions, there's a lot to it. It's not just, hey, I'm going to store some cash in a vault and give it to you when you want it. In fact, as, as we're going to say, as we're going to talk about here, there's no cash at all in most of this stuff. It, it's money dealing activities and functions that are provided by these banks. Precisely, Jeff. They're not called currency dealers. They're called money dealers. And there's a difference. And as you tell us, there's a lack of any actual currency in what they're doing. There's practically none of the physical Federal Reserve notes or any paper dollars of any kind. And that's hard to imagine uh, money dealing without any paper, without any currency. But you help walk us through this uh, idea, this hard to grasp concept with an example of a bank in Singapore and a bank in the Cayman Islands. It sounds like a bedtime story. Tell us this tale. Yeah, it's, it's a riveting tale of money dealing uh, across the world. No, it, look, you're exactly right. And I think people have a conception of money in, as you, as you just said, it's, it's currency. There's physical Federal Reserve notes in some vault somewhere. And a bank hires a bunch of guards and armored trucks and planes and things and, pallet, and pallets of cash move back and forth. When it's further from it, that could not be further from the truth. There is a piece of paper involved, and it's 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 a bookkeeper's pay piece of paper. But that's the only piece of paper. There's no actual currency. It's a bookkeeper's pen that keeps ledger entries back and forth, essentially trading and transacting in IOUs of all sorts of all kinds of forms of IOUs, essentially. And if we start, we think about you know, as I as I wrote in the article. A company in Singapore who has to do business in the global marketplace, because Singapore obviously is, is, a, is a city, doesn't really have access to all of the types of economic resources it might need. So it having to participate in the global marketplace means you have to have the global currency available to you in order to transact in that marketplace. So a company in Singapore is going to need dollars to buy anything because the Singapore dollar, as, as prestigious as it is, simply won't fly in most parts of the world. Nobody's going to take Singapore dollars for transactions. So this company in Singapore needs to find dollars from somewhere. So it will contact another local domestic bank in the island of Singapore and say, look, I need some dollars because I got to buy something from somewhere else outside of the city. And that bank say, I'm going to look in the offshore euro dollar market, finds a transacting or a counterparty, maybe in the Cayman Islands, since that's a, a major euro dollar offshore hub, and says, look, I need dollars to provide this company so that it can go off into the marketplace and buy real goods and services in the real economy. And the Cayman Islands Bank says, well, I don't have any dollars either, but I can, I can get them if I want to. But so is say, my promise good enough for you? Yes. Okay, good. So there, when you say they don't have any dollars, we know they're not talking about these dollars, the right. physical dollars. Right. 
but they may also, you say, not actually have the dollars and all they're offering is a claim that they'll be able to. Is right. that so right? Think, hey, there's... this is a bank that's in the Caymans. It's been operating in this market forever. So if I ever needed to come up with the actual physical currency, what better, what better uh, company to transact with? So the Cayman Islands Bank doesn't have dollars. It realizes it doesn't need dollars. It's basically trading on reputation and trust. And it says, look, if you need for physical currency, I can get it for you. But what do you need physical currency for when my promise is good enough? So the bank in Singapore now has a claim or actually has, has given a claim to the bank in the Caymans, and the, the bank in the Caymans now has a claim on the bank in Singapore. Now, the cash lender, you say, is relieved of any obligation for physical paper, and instead of uh, their ability to exchange this claim depends on several factors. And now here it gets into some interesting math. You're saying that, that some of those factors are mathematical descriptions, volatility, loss probabilities. Tell us a little bit about the Cayman Bank and how it feels comfortable that it can promise to deliver dollars to Singapore. Yes, let's be specific here. What happens is the bank and the Caymans as the cash lender, again, there's no cash, it's, it's simply <laughs> a, a, an asset. Yeah. But as the dollar lender to the bank in the Singapore, or bank in Singapore, it has essentially created an asset. That's the claim. I now say I, I've, lent, I've lent dollars to Singapore. Now I have a claim on Singapore to repay them over whatever the contract specifies, including interest and maturity and all those kinds of things. But in order for the Cayman Islands Bank to make that loan, to create this asset, it has to pass muster in all of its balance sheet mechanics, which is, you know, what's the risk of the, making this loan? Because you know banks in the Cayman Islands are not going to just make make loans for no uh, to anybody for no reason or for any reason, they have to have uh, this this lending arrangement has to meet certain criteria that the individual bank in the Cayman Islands has set for its own balance sheet, and those usually relate to not just creditworthiness but also volatility and things in the marketplace because you know in this modern quantified world. Even interbank loans like this have given some sort of volatility. You know, we have to model the present value of this loan to fit it into the asset, the asset side dynamics of balance sheet construction. And so it's really for the for the Cayman Islands Bank, it's okay, I'm going to create an asset. And how does that asset look or how does it fit into my own individual balance sheet constraints? And if it fits in there relative relatively easily, then there's no problem here. We'll just do the loan and everybody will be happy. Now, Jeff, two words I didn't hear from you right now were Federal Reserve. The Cayman Bank at no point was thinking, well, what does the Federal Reserve have to say about me lending dollars to Singapore, U.S. dollars? They don't come into it because it's a cashless system, right? I guess if they were shipping Federal Reserve notes, then they would have to get Federal Reserve notes, but they're not. And that's one of the key points of this whole series the Federal Reserve didn't come into this consideration. It was bank individual idiosyncratic bank balance sheet considerations. On the lender side, what about the counterparty in Asia? Are they going through similar considerations? Yeah, they, 
Now, on the other side, the bank in the, the bank in Singapore now has a liability, a U.S. dollar liability to the bank in the Cayman Islands, which it agrees to pay back under certain circumstances and under uh, individual terms that have been worked out. And you're absolutely right. Because it's a bank in Caymans and the bank in the Singapore, this has nothing to do with the United States whatsoever, not just the Federal Reserve. It has absolutely nothing to do with the United States whatsoever, even though this is a U.S. dollar-denominated asset and liability. And so it's dollars, but it's not really dollars. And of course, they're not no physical currency either. So it's really kind of a virtual reserveless currency system that operates on a certain, absolutely like virtual principles. And so, you know, on the other side, the bank in Singapore also has to make sure that this liability fits within its idiosyncratic factors for funding. Because when you're putting together a balance sheet, it's not just assets or liabilities, it's about how those two things fit together. Because remember, the, um, the bank in Singapore is ex intending to make a loan to a company, which is usually longer term. So if I'm arranging, say, a short-term overnight loan that I intend to roll over with the bank in, in the Cayman Islands as, as my source of funds for that loan, I have a liability mismatch potentially that I need to be aware of. And so these are bank factors on each side, the liability side and the asset side that have to match in order for this transaction to happen. Now, you say that governing much of these individual transactions are modern conventions of mitigation, instruments, and methods. And I'm going to make that in synonymize. I'm going to translate that into risk management. Is that right? And I think here we're going to draw a line between the pre-2008 financial system and the post-2008 financial system. Because before 2008, it seems like they would be able to conduct this transaction and maybe offset, risk mitigate it with derivatives, with credit default swaps. Whereas after 2008, that seems less prevalent, less used. And now we need to use, now the borrower needs to put up collateral. And that leads to a whole lot of problems. Well, it's interesting because when you do draw the line between pre and post crisis, the 2008 crisis, um, in the pre-crisis period, you were talking about the Federal Reserve, where does it come into it? That's really where it came into it in the pre-crisis period, because if I was the bank in the Cayman Islands and you were the bank in Singapore and we're doing this transaction, we would, you know, unsecured transaction overnight, whether, you know, you know overnight or even at a term, we thought that that was before 2007, we thought there was really no risks to it. I knew you, you knew me. And so we just engaged in this transaction. We didn't really care about it because we thought, well, this is an easy thing. We have reputations established. And if anything goes wrong, I can always borrow in federal funds or even go to the discount window of the Federal Reserve if I have to in order to keep this thing going. It, there was really, it was perceived to be so low risk, it didn't matter, essentially, as long as, as, long as we kind of knew each other, we, we'd seen each other operate in the marketplace, there didn't need to be any kind of security, and they fit into any kind of balance sheet, at the, either on your side or the liability side or my side and the asset side, because it was perceived to be the lowest of the lowest form of risk. And so it was very easy to sit, to, to put it onto a balance sheet. And, but now that risk has changed and now you need collateral except guess what collateral is just not laying around freely in singapore they don't have any spare u.s treasuries or german bonds or whatever kind of collateral they can put up so if the cayman islands bank says you know we're living in a post 2008 world i 
you know, we're good friends, but I can't just lend this money to you uncollateralized, unsecured. I need some collateral from you, Singapore. Where is Singapore going to get the collateral to satisfy the request? Yeah, and that's an important point too, because as I'm putting together my balance sheet, I want to do this loan to you. But the way I model that loan nowadays, mathematically, it's not the same as it was pre -credit. Now there's some risk there. I now have to incorporate some risk there, which means it's more balance sheet intensive. It's, it takes up, it soaks up more balance sheet space to do this loan when it's perceived to be riskier. So it might be that, you know, I say to you, Emil, I, I know we've been doing business forever, but my balance sheet constraints have changed. I now look at you. I don't look at you specifically in business as risky, but the math does. The math says we've had nothing but problems for the last 10, 12 years. And I, I'm sorry, man, but it, unless we have something to mitigate the risk and to reduce it in, in the modeling, I can't fit it on my balance sheet the way I would like, unless I charge you an enormous rate to make it profitable. And so I have to ask you for some kind of mitigation, which, I mean, standard mitigation, standard, the easiest thing to do is, hey, just put up some treasuries with me. We'll do a repo. We'll, we'll do a bespoke repo trade. That way, the risk on my end, the risk of this asset goes way down. I can easily fit it in the balance sheet like I did before. And by the way, that helps you too, because as a, as a repo trade on the liability side for you, that's, that's, that should also change the model characteristics for your liquidity risks on your, on your liability side too. So we have to now rejigger our balance sheet considerations to account for a much riskier world. Jeff, let me go back for a moment to derivatives again, because I want to make sure in my mind whether or not the, the, the disuse or the lack of use for derivatives since 2008 is related to what we're discussing. So the BIS, they put together uh, derivative tallies for all the global money centers. And then every, and they do that every six months. And then every three years, they'll do a wider survey of the world to get a sense of you know what they're missing outside of the global money centers. And what you see, they, it starts from 1998, you see the classic exponential curve. And I, I think it reached like 700 billion or trillion? Trillion, trillion, yeah, trillion. in notional yeah. value. Three quarters right of a quadrillion. <laughs> right around 2000, right at 2008. Yep. And then just a steady for flat. And then in 2014, 15, 16 down. And now it's gradual, modest increase, but essentially just a flat line across from 2008. Jeff, does that mean that what that before the banks were using those derivatives to satisfy risk measures, but now those derivatives are insufficient to satisfy the risk they perceive and thus they need more collateral? Or am I conflating two different subjects? No, and I think you, you're, you're got it right, but there's actually more to it because there's two sides to the equation, right? As we're talking about here, there's always two sides to every transaction. And so, yeah, there was enormous demand and you know those derivatives, credit default swaps, and the like wouldn't apply to the to the to the simple example that we're we're going through here. It would apply to some of the more complex uh, financial transactions that would take place, where you might need, you know, if I'm lending directly, a bank in the Cayman Islands lending directly to a risky corporation, for example, or buying an emerging market corporate bond in U.S. dollars or something like that, where I might need some kind of more uh, sophisticated risk mitigation technique. Now, in the pre-crisis era. 
there was an enormous number of banks willing to provide that risk mitigation technique for me and for a very small fee because it was thought that this was all there was no risk involved this was just mathematical manipulation we were just we just got to do it just to do it in order to fit everything under our mathematical constraints since 2008 the demand for risk mitigation might be higher but the supply is that's what you're seeing in the bis data the supply is lower because the dealers realize there's more risk involved on our end for providing these risk mitigation processes than we ever thought and the amount that we would charge for banks to do this probably makes it uneconomical for the transaction to take place anyway so it becomes a systemic friction another part of the global dollar shortage that we talk about because risk mitigation money dealing all of these kinds of things balance sheet capacity design and all all of these other factors have become much more difficult to accomplish relative to the pre-crisis era and famously it was aig not a bank that was providing the credit default swaps for i believe the mortgage-backed securities or any number of uh securities and they would not have made good on those promises unless the federal government stepped in in the United States and made good on that. And so is yeah, it- Yeah, and the reason they needed the federal government to bail it out was because it ran into a shortage of collateral. And so the, because AIG was short of collateral because of the way they were doing things pre-crisis era, that led to AIG becoming uh, perceived to be, and in reality, a risky uh, insurance company, at least the, some of the subsidiaries like AIGFP, which then put in doubt all of these credit default swaps that had been written. So we can never get away from the collateral shortage, even in that. But you, you know, I think it's a very good point too, because I think as we're going to go along here, we're going to see that it's not just banks who we could call money dealers. Insurance companies play an important role, especially in collateral too. So you know, the, 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 the category that includes this money dealing stuff is much, much broader than maybe people are, are led to believe. Good. That segues perfectly back to our story. So in Singapore, Singapore has been asked by the Cayman Islands to provide collateral. Guess what? Singapore, uh, the bank doesn't have that collateral lying around. So like AIG, they're going to go out into the market and ask for collateral, but who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to dealers for collateral. And so tell us the story now of these dealers. Who are they? Where do they come from? Who has the collateral that the dealers are using? It's basically any, again, any large global bank that has access to financial marketplaces. And so, you know, it's, I'm a bank and you're the bank in Singapore, you need treasuries in order to complete this, uh, this short-term funding transaction with this other bank in the Cayman Islands. I can do that for you. I might have treasuries in inventory because I'm, look, I'm, I'm a primary dealer. That's part of my activities. I, I buy assets from the, the US government. So I have, I have warehouse securities of my own on my own balance sheet that I can lend to you for a small fee. Um, or if I don't have the collateral you need, I know people who do, who are insurance companies, pension funds, who are only too happy to try to enhance their low returns on safe assets by lending them out to me. So I have access to a wide variety of collateral sources, a large collateral pool that I could then give to you, for, again, for a small fee that allows you to then complete this transaction with this bank in the Cayman Islands. So as far as the Cayman Islands Bank is concerned, You've acquired treasury somehow, and if, if you default on the cash loan, the, the Cayman Islands Bank has the right to seize the collateral and sell it. 
So for the audience, if you are following along, the collateral that's backing this cash loan. This riskless loan. <laughs> this riskless loan was the collateral was provided by the Singapore bank. The Singapore bank borrowed that collateral from a dealer. That dealer possibly borrowed that collateral as well from an insurance company. Or, you know, as we talk about a lot, it, it's re-pledged collateral from one of its prime brokerage clients. Or, that's, yeah. that's, that's really going back to what your original question was. What do the dealers do? This is one of a dealer's functions. How do I source collateral? And it's maintaining various sources of collateral because all this stuff ends up becoming fungible. It almost becomes like its own currency. How do I keep, I, you know, as the bank in Singapore is trying to manage its dollar funding with this bank in the Cayman Islands, the dealer has to manage its collateral funding sourcing collateral constantly so that it can maintain these other relationships where collateral gets relent and repledged and all these other things. And so here, so it's like putting up your house as, as collateral, but then having a second and third and fourth it's, lien it's actually, and people being okay with that. No, it's, which, it's actually putting up your neighbor's house who has pledged it to your <laughs> other neighbor. And so your second neighbor has pledged it to you. <laughs> so your, your second neighbor has to maintain houses to pledge to you because you constantly need that secure, that collateral. Otherwise the Cayman Islands is going to say, I have to have the cash back, or at least I need to close out your liability, which would cause a balance sheet shortfall, which then causes the Singapore bank to have all sorts of problems because it's extended a dollar loan that it no longer has the ability to fund. And in theory, this sounds enormously complex as you write, but in practice, it has become pretty much standard, repeated seamlessly on a daily basis. Incredible. But if balance sheet capacity generically is governed by risk, including judgments about volatility, then anything in the world, real or imagined, which could upset perceptions of risk and volatility might have a cascading effect upon the balance sheet capacities far and wide. So far, we've been talking about cash being collateralized, but then you bring us to this idea of what is collateralizing the collateral. Here, let me read it. What What's the security for the dealer's security that has been secured by other means before it ever becomes collateral with seizure rights by this bank in Caymans? Or as you put it again, what's the dealer's collateral for the collateral it is repledging to be collateral further on after having it already been repledged into use? Yeah, I have to apologize for the absurdity <laughs> and ridiculousness no, of that. Good. But it's actually, you know, it's to make the point here that it's not that far off from the truth. And really, if you're a dealer and I'm extending collateral to the bank in Singapore, or if I'm the dealer and I'm extending the, the, the collateral to the bank in Singapore, what is my security for the collateral, right? Because if, if you default on the cash, that collateral disappears to the Caymans. Suddenly, I'm kind of on the hook because I borrowed it from my prime brokerage customer, a hedge fund who actually owns the thing. I have to go into the market and replace it somehow by borrowing, probably. So I'm going to collateralize the collateralized collateralization. It's you know it's it's it, it, this this entire collateral side of the of the SFTs as they're now being called. What does is, that stand an for? Secured financing transactions. It's essentially this amorphous pool of all sorts of funds and sources and and, and redistribution techniques where, you know it. It's, it's completely misunderstood. It's, it's most often never even factored when it has 
proven time and time again to be one of the biggest factors in these modern problems. These these post in in, in fact, two thousand eight was a collateral issue more than anything else. It certainly had less to do with subprime mortgages and it had everything to do, as we just said, AIG failed because of a collateral shortage. And so what we're really talking about, what we're really trying to understand is what are the risks that could potentially disrupt these collateral chains and these collateral flow? For the, Singap the bank in Singapore, in order to maintain its funding of this US dollar loan that it's given to its local company, it has to have that US dollar liability. And as we said before, it has to have the collateral. Otherwise, the Cayman Islands Bank is going to say, I can't fit this unsecured interbank loan under my balance sheet. It's too risky. I'm going to, I'm going to stop funding you. I'm not going to roll over tomorrow. And so the collateral becomes that important. But what, what keeps the collateral flowing? What keeps that part of the tap or what, what that part of the market on uh, continuing to work? And it's really what the dealers perceive, what the dealers are thinking, because they perform a role, they charge a fee, but they also take some risk in doing so. And they have to look at the bank in Singapore and say, is this guy going to screw me? Is he going to take the collateral and default? And so I have to have some kind of some kind of idea of what, what what's going on downstream of the collateral, because I have obligations upstream, too. And so if anything were to spook the dealers that would reverberate out through the system. And you make a key point here. You can see where we're heading here. If anything should disrupt these collateral streams, the issues this would create are one, not easy to identify, two, not fixable by cash, cash with quotation marks, or in any way, the Federal Reserve's bank reserves. These currency-like properties of the collateral side of the global money system mean that it is a currency without backstop, governed only by the dealers who are central to it. Should yeah, we get just into think about in our simple example, what happens when the dealer says to the bank in Singapore, I don't want to lend you the treasury anymore. You're the bank in Singapore, you're, you're, you're pretty much screwed. And so there's really not much you can do because how else are you how else are you going to maintain your relationship with the bank in the caymans you have to sell some kind of asset in order to raise the dollars assuming you have a dollar asset and usually that's not an easy thing to do because you know unless there's a market for it you're going to take a loss and so the collateral starts to become a problem it becomes a big problem and if the federal reserve goes to the dealer and says well we'll give you some bank reserves that's wholly, that's wholly unsatisfactory. <laughs> Thanks, but we don't need them. <laughs> yeah, because they need collateral. They need treasuries. They need collateral. Even, not... if, even if the dealer doesn't need the treasuries because it doesn't, it, you know, if it doesn't want to extend the, the collateral loan to Singapore, what good is bank reserves going to do? Are they going to extend an unsecured loan to Singapore? No, it's 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 it, it, it's not helpful. Who who is Sebastian Infante and Zach Sarave? And what did they recently write about uh, that's pertinent to our discussion here? There are a couple of authors, I believe, at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, and they, they wrote a paper in October of last year talking about collateral change. And I believe this paper was pointed out by another, another instance of a reader, uh, a, a, show, a, a viewer of the show who said, hey, look, you guys need to pay, you need to, need to, you need to know that this paper was written. And so it was, a, it was actually a pretty good paper 
um, detailing some of the stuff that we just talked about and putting it into the more formal econometrics and regression analysis and things like that. And what they found out was that, yes, guess what? Treasuries get reused and repledged quite a lot. <laughs> and which, I mean, anybody who's been looking at the repo market for any length of time would say, yeah, well, duh, we know this. But yeah, and I think that's really the point is that as we've said time and again, referring to Europe and you know the term SFT itself, this, this is emerging scholarship, at least in the official side, even though it's been going on for half a century. You know, 50 years later, they finally get around to some of the more interesting aspects of what really happens in the modern monetary system. I'm going to make that point that they made, and then I'm going to read a few quotes from, from them, and then you yeah, just it was jump interesting. in. Yeah, I want to, yeah, definitely read the quote because it was interesting that they, they started out by making that point. Despite the prevalence of U.S. Treasury reuse, its importance for market functioning and the financial stability risk supposes the empirical literature on what drives reuse is scant. I would say it's non-existent. I mean, scant is, is putting it charitably. And it's one of those things, you know, you know to, to speak from a personal perspective, it's one of those frustrating things where you, you keep saying time year after year, month after month, decade after decade, pay attention to collateral, pay attention to repo. You know, 2008 wasn't subprime, it was a collateral shortage. And here it is in, in October of 2020, where somebody at the Fed is finally starting to say, hmm, maybe we should look at collateral. <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable, mind-boggling stupid because the evidence has been overwhelming for that, that length of time. And that's really, I think the point is, it's gotten so, ba so bad and so overwhelming that even recalcitrant central bankers are now saying, huh, maybe we should look at collateral. And by the way, as they write about in their paper, we're, we're definitely gonna be talking about March, 2020. Well, they say about March, 2020, treasury reuse reached its lowest point on record. Yeah, but let's, before we get into that, let's also state here that this paper used um, confidential inside information, call reports, bank stuff in real time that you and I, Emil, could only dream of having access to. And so it's another point of frustration. They have had all of this information in front of them for, for decades and did nothing with it. When there's those of us on the outside who have been looking at repo and collateral and, and trying to piece these things together could only kill for that kind of in information. And it's just, it's, you know, it, it explains why the world is so upside down. The people who have the information have no idea what they're looking at. And the people who, have, who would have some idea of what to do with this stuff can't get any access to any of this kind of information. What, well, let's see. I'm going to read a couple of quotes, and then they came to a conclusion here. They said, a $33 billion increase in weekly Fed purchases leads to a 0.5 increase in the collateral chain. That's a huge, I think that's, uh, let's, before we go, let's stop right mm -hmm, there. And mm -hmm. talk, I mean, that's a big point. It's one of the things that we've been, I've been talking about and many other people, you know, Andy Kessler from the Wall Street Journal wrote about it too, was that when they do these quantitative easing programs, it raises the level of bank reserves at the expense of pulling bonds out of the market. And if that quantitative easing program is targeting uh, safe assets like U.S. Treasuries to purchase, then what happens is, the level of bank reserves go up, which we know means nothing, and the level of collateral available goes down. And so here's this Federal Reserve paper written last year that says, yup, that's what happens. When the, when the Fed does QE, 
that takes collateral out of the system. And what happens, what has to happen, and what their findings, that quote you're talking about, what their findings show is that the dealer system has to adjust for lower levels of collateral by reusing and repledging that much more to make up for the shortfall. Now, they kind of make it sound like that's a good thing. Oh, the, the, the dealer system is absorbing the Federal Reserve's fat butt, uh, crowding collateral out of the system, when in fact, it's really making it more risky because these collateral chains have to stretch and it, can, it contributes to the pro-cyclicality risk behind it all. So it's not a good thing. And in fact, I believe, I don't know if you're going to get to the quote where, where they say, look, it, um, interconnectedness. Yeah, that one. Read that quote. These observations combined suggest that the central bank can effectively reduce the interconnectedness of the financial system by reducing the size of its balance sheet. Oh, you got to say it right. Really, really emphasize the, the word there. Reduce its balance sheet. To the central bank has to shrink its balance sheet in order to reduce risk in the system. That's exactly the opposite way we're thought we're supposed to think about this. Because I'm confused. Poke, I, I'm so confused. What are they? I'm just confused. It doesn't seem like what the Fed. The, yeah. What the Fed does is it pulls collateral out of the system, which forces mm -hmm. dealers to adjust by repledging more, which raises risks. Mm -hmm. So in order for the Fed to reduce interconnectedness and lower those collateral chains and lower the systemic risk, they need to stop QE. They need to reverse QE. They need to shrink their balance sheet. Yes, I so agree. So in order and for is the that central what they're bank saying? to help, yes, for the central bank to help reduce risk and repo and collateral, they need to get smaller, not bigger. You know what's so hard for, you know why I was confused is because I know the Federal Reserve had a hand in writing this. So well, no, it's, I think, you know, there's another important distinction here. The staff level at some of these central banks is where some of the stuff is coming from because the staff level can be more open to being open-minded. Whereas yeah. the top level policy people, especially, you know, you just read one transcript from an FOMC meeting. You can tell these are just empty suits who have no interest in believing anything other than they've what they've believed for 50 years. And so there's this, there's natural bureaucratic sort of institutional tension between people under the staff levels who are saying, this is what's going on. There's evidence is overwhelming. And then trying to forward that along to the top levels of the central bank, the policy levels of the central bank and convince them, hey, everything that you've been doing for all this time is, is maybe there's, maybe it's not as good as you thought it was. And that's a difficult proposition. And you can understand, you can you can have a little bit of sympathy for Fed staff who are saying this is actually happening. Here's the numbers, and uh, you know a policy level central banker saying, "No, you're crazy. There's no way we're harming the system." Yeah, I was confused because this sentence makes sense. That's the worldview. That's how I understand it. But I knew it was written by the Federal Reserve. Therefore, I said, "Well." They can't possibly be saying that. They can't be saying something that makes sense. I must not understand right. the words the that they're, they're actually saying. saying. Right. The reason they're saying is the evidence is overwhelmed. You can't. Amazing. It's, it's been that way for so many years, and it's been tested, and we've seen it happen time and time again. QE is harmful. It's potentially harmful. And if you want to reduce the risks and collateral, stop buying bonds and taking them out of the system, which something you and I have talked about endlessly since, you know, not QE, or QE5 in, you know, from 2019 to mm. March of 2020, they committed possibly the worst, worst error in central bank history by removing treasury bills at the worst possible moment. And here's this paper saying, reduce risk, smaller balance sheet on the Fed, when what was Jay Powell doing? Increasing risk, 
by buying bonds, making these collateral chains stretch that much longer, dealers becoming more overextended in collateral side. Therefore, when, th when the, pardon me, when the shit hit the fan in March of 2020, the system was in that much weaker, fragile state that really couldn't handle the, well, I mean, admittedly it was enormous shock, the, the COVID shutdown, but still there was no reason for it to have been that severe. It was monetary malpractice, criminal negligence would happen in September 2019. Earlier you said you, that you've been saying this for years. Ladies and gentlemen, June 2013 just, just shows that uh, you're not a Jeffrey come lately. Here, let me read it. I have been June 2013. I have been pounding the table for months about QE and its inverse relationship with vital banking liquidity. In engaging in large-scale asset purchases, central banks, particularly in the U.S. and Japan, are playing a very dangerous game. Despite conventional wisdom that when a central bank engages in such a monetary easing program, it must lead to an increase in liquidity, such a belief is far too simplistic. QE is actually the opposite of liquidity. Jeff, do you have any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I think what's important about all that, you know, just putting it into to the to the time here, um, it took eight years after four QE, those initial four QEs for 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 this paper to come out. It was seven years before this paper finally came out. So, you know, it, it look it represents a step forward. But let's be honest, it represents a very small step forward because the, the hill to climb here for the staffers who are looking at evidence and evaluating it with an honest eye, they have a huge, enormous task in front of them, which is to, to reorient monetary policy and indeed really monetary understanding in such a huge way that we shouldn't expect any fruits of this kind of paper to be evident for a very, very long time. So yes, it's good that this was written. It's good that this, this stuff is starting to seep its way into the mainstream. Again, going back to my personal perspective, I can tell you that there is more interest in monetary complications, euro dollars, shadow money, that kind of thing over the last couple of years, but it is still just baby steps and it is incredibly, incredibly slow pace. Ladies and gentlemen, the holy metal that you need in order to kill any number of beasts is silver. You need a silver bullet and they're very rare and people think well that you know there's no silver bullet is the common saying and there isn't in the offshore euro dollar market but if there was a silver bullet it might be the euro dollar futures market which has been consistently right about which direction the global economy is heading for years now and that's what we're going to discuss next in part two LIBOR is a offshore dollar rate. Now, it almost shouldn't exist. It's based in London and it's an a short-term interest rate on US dollars. There seems to be something up, something fishy and authorities, central bankers don't like it. But you and I, the audience, we can use this rate to help us understand which direction the global economy is going. And there's also something called Euro dollar futures that's based on this rate. But before we get too far, Jeff, uh, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, tell us a little bit about LIBOR and then help us go segue into Eurodollar futures, which is the meat of this section. Well, you got, you pretty much explained mm -hmm. it. LIBOR is, Super. you know, it, there's a, 
There's a couple different LIBOR rates that have different tenors. So, for example, the three-month LIBOR says, uh, you know, I'm a bank in London operating offshore euro dollars. I want to lend to somebody else. What would I? What rate would I lend at? Or what rate would it's it's an own rate? So, what rate would I expect to be charged for borrowing unsecured euro dollars at three-month term in this in this offshore market? Now, euro dollar futures, which are indexed to three-month LIBOR, are a different market that has essentially set itself up to look at what would three-month LIBOR be at certain points in the future, because we want to know what the future is going to look like, because in an uncertain world, we need to be able to have some sort of idea of what maybe the risks are looking out just over the horizon. So we have this euro dollar futures market indexed to three-month LIBOR, again, offshore U.S. dollars. That is one of the deepest, most sophisticated and liquid markets there has ever been in existence, probably second only to the U.S. Treasury market, in that euro dollar futures is absolutely enormous. And it's not mom and pop regular you know, retail investors, no GameStop or uh, Reddit um, euro dollar futures, at least not yet. Exactly. The people, the, the investors, the speculators, the hedgers that are operating euro dollar futures are going to be essentially the insiders of the global monetary system. And so there's, there's a lot of information contained in just not just the euro dollar futures contracts, but the way that curve shapes and how it moves and transitions through time that can tell you a lot about what the monetary system itself is thinking about conditions and risks in the future or the way things are changing. Exactly. And so the Federal Reserve believes that the euro dollar futures and the LIBOR rate should be closely aping, mimicking their alternative short-term rates and it does right but there are moments yeah, it, when just you know in the pre no in the pre-crisis period libor and federal funds the effective federal funds and the target were so closely correlated that's where that came from the federal reserve said look we'll target federal funds and we'll make sure the, the effective rate stays close to the target and we only need to do that acknowledging the fact that the, the dollar system is much more uh, expansive offshore the reason they thought they only need to target the domestic federal funds market was because of this very close uh, correlation or close relationship between LIBOR and federal funds. And so, but there were moments when it departed. In fact, there have been two key moments, one right before 2008, and then another one in 2018, where the euro dollar futures started going, or the started implying the rates would be going away from where the Federal Reserve thought they would be going. Right. If you think of LIBOR as following the Fed, mm-hmm. then you would think Eurodollar futures looking ahead to where LIBOR will be. You would think Eurodollar futures is all about what the Fed says where monetary policy will be in the future. But that's really not the case. What the market is saying is whatever Jay Powell or Ben Bernanke or whoever's Federal Reserve chairman is thinking, he may be wrong. In, in fact, he's quite often wrong or, or her when we go back, when we think about Janet Yellen, him or her. Um, it, a very a famous example of that was in two, December of 2006, long before anybody had talked about subprime mortgages, the Eurodollar futures curve began to invert, which is to say that even though Ben Bernanke was still, he just finished up a rate hike regime, or if he finished up Alan Greenspan's rate hike regime in the middle decade, what the uh, Eurodollar futures market was saying is we're starting to think that Ben Bernanke is going to have to start cutting rates. Something is, something's working in the system that's going to force him, even though he says, no way, it's never happening, everything's fine. 
it's the probabilities are rising that the federal or that short-term rates are going to have to fall over time, which of course is what exactly happened. And that was true again in 2018 when Jay Powell came into office, you know, the aggressive hawk that he, he, he tried to portray for himself, you know, the economy's booming The unemployment rate is so low that it's going to create inflation and we need to get ahead of it by raising rates and maybe even more aggressively than Janet Yellen had been doing. That was his stance in the middle of 2018. Remember the middle of 2018 when the euro dollar futures curve inverted that time too, which was again the same proposition. Jay Powell says we're going to do one thing and the market is starting to say, no, you're going to be wrong, Jay. It, sometime in the future, looking forward from the middle of 2018, we think there might be rate cuts, not rate hikes. And of course, that's exactly what ended up happening long before we got to COVID. You know, in, in, the, in the, er, the middle part of 2019, there was those three rate cuts that uh, the Federal Reserve had, the unexpected rate cuts the Federal Reserve had to implement because they saw the growing weakness to the rest of the global economy and even the US economy and responded to it, the same weakness that the euro dollar futures market had been anticipating for a year, year and a half by then. And so in 2013, we had a similar uh, example because we were heading towards 2014, which we call euro dollar number three, which was focused on East Asia and emerging markets. And the euro dollar futures, so the US treasury curve, it seems to have reached its highest yield point inflection height uh, at the end of 2013, but starting in September, you note that this curve, Euro dollar 2013, uh, in September 2013, Euro dollar curve reached its maximum height. And that was about, it depends on when you want to say the Euro dollar three started. I'm using Euro dollar too much, but when the disorder started, it, you know, we had trouble in April. 2014. You could say the dollar took off in July 2014. So more than, let's say, six to 12, nine months ahead of time, euro dollar futures were signaling trouble, caution. Let me yeah, pull up a curve. Yeah, it's amazing. If you put it in the, like you just did, the sequence of events going backwards, you know, middle of 2014, as everything was supposed to be going right, we already seen, we had already seen things going wrong which the most prominent was oil prices began to crash. But before that, we had seen things in repo earlier in 20, 2014. The US dollar exchange value started to rise precipitously in the middle of 2014. Treasury yields, as you pointed out, peaked in December 31st of 2013. But you look at euro dollar futures, that curve, that reflationary steepening in the euro dollar futures curve had peaked in September. So, you know, four full months before the Treasury curve did, Eurodollar futures was already repositioning, thinking, wait a minute, we're seeing things going wrong. Among the things that we were seeing was these, this emerging, emerging market currency crisis, which is the US dollar starting to play havoc against all of these other currencies, while supposedly this awesome taper tantrum was going on in US Treasuries. You know, as reflation number two was supposedly gathering steam, the Eurodollar futures market was amongst the first to say, wait a minute here. We're, we're, we're again seeing all of the things we shouldn't see around the global Eurodollar system. And that reflation maybe had reached its, its, its full peak much further or much earlier than, than really uh, we, you can see from other markets. And so we're looking at a graph right now and we can see how the, the back end of the curve is rising because the front end was stapled to the floor because of zero interest rate policy. 
and then it was rising steadily until September. And then in December, you can see how much it fell back. But he can warning of a coming disorder. But we can also look at it from the other end where we can measure a reflation. So let me move ahead to 2016, 2018 and look at that curve. Yeah, that's what we're really seeing here is reflationary curves. That when the curve steepens like that, that's that's the reflationary. It's the same thing as you see in the U.S. Treasury market. That's the the, the uh, euro dollar futures market doing its part by saying, yeah, we think things are improving. There's a greater probability of 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 at least some kind of economic improvement in terms of growth and inflation over the over the, over the the contract or the curve period, such that we think the future may be not as bad as we had we had been thinking beforehand. And so we're, you know what we have to point out right here when we're looking at this reflation, I think this was reflation number three, after 2016, so once Euro dollar number three ended, which lasted from 2014 to 2016, we started to see a reflation, it was called globally synchronized growth. And you know what I noticed, Jeff, it's remarkable right away, that curve, the far end, yeah, the short end is rising, the near term. But that far end, it seems like there's a ceiling preventing it from ever rising. It's as if these very important market participants that have billions and trillions of dollars on the line said, we've been fooled twice and we're not going to expect a full recovery anymore. Yeah, that's the, the interesting part of the curve is the long versus the short, right? Just like it is in the treasury market. And the short end is, okay, Janet Yellen, you're going to be raising rates, and we recognize that you're going to be raising rates, but over time, we believe that you're not going to be able to get that far. And again, this is 2016 and 2017, as everything was supposedly going perfectly, swimmingly, globally synchronized growth. The market is saying, we recognize the Fed is going to be raising rates, but over the longer term, we don't believe they're ever going to get that far, which was not the position of either the mainstream or economists or central bankers or anybody else. The, but yet here is this deep liquid market, along with the treasury curve, by the way, the treasury curve behaved very similarly. Both of them were saying this globally synchronized growth is a bumper sticker. It's not really much more than that. Yes, conditions in the short runs appear to be favorable for Janet Yellen to continue her rate hikes, but over the intermediate and longer term, again, she's not going to get very far. And as Jay Powell in 2018, taking over from Yellen, pushed them even further, that's when the short end rose above the longer end. It inverted, which was the market saying, okay, you've reached it. You've hit the, you've hit the point of, uh, where you can't get any farther. The risks have become too big to ignore, or at least for us to ignore. And we're betting that over the next couple of years, whether it's 2019 or 2020, they're going to be rate cuts, not rate hikes. And that is exactly what happened. Let us move forward to present day then, Jeff. And you know what? I'm looking at this, this graph and it seems good. It's going in the right direction. You've got August 2020, January 2021, and March 2021. And it looks good. Yes, August 4th of 2020 was both the low point for the for the uh, U.S. Treasury curve. If you look at the what was the lowest level for the uh, 10-year U.S. Treasury, for example, it was August 4th. It was actually the low point for the Eurodollar futures curve, too. So that's sort of our worst case, awful, atrocious 2020 baseline. And it, over the last, you know, uh, four months, five months of 2020, it, it, it became reflationary a little bit. 
which is the difference between the you know the dark the dark, the uh, black dotted line and the blue dotted line, and then the 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 first couple of months of 2021 when we really seem to have gotten uh, gotten into the reflationary trade and the reflationary trend, you can see how much the curve has steepened over the last couple of months, which. Many people are making a lot out of this. This seems like, oh my God, this is a huge sell-off. The market is now pricing rate hikes into some point in the future. And how do we interpret that in terms of what this Eurodollar futures curve may actually be selling us? And that's what you show us on the next graph, if I could pull it up. It's when you're comparing this most recent reflation hysteria stimulus central bank printing to the moon curve to recent reflations. So I'm yeah, going to try can, to pull it already, up. But I think you, you can already, just looking at this chart, you can already see where we're going because I've kept this on the same scale as the prior two charts. And you can already kind of see that it's <laughs> it's not very good. Can you see right? so Can we, you see this graph, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, we can see it. Okay, super. And so when you put the current reflationary sell-off in the context of all the other ones, and by the way, the, the red curves and the brown and the blue curves are not the actual sell-off. Those are some of the high points of that sell-off. The, this, the, the reflationary sell-off in Eurodollar futures was much larger uh, uh, bottom to top. So I've even given the green curves the benefit of the doubt by comparing it that way. But the point, the overall point is, are we really supposed to get excited about the sell-off and reflation when number one, this is what the curve does every time we get into reflation. And number two, as you say so often, Emil, this is the weakest one yet. And it's weakest in every kind of dimension you could possibly come, whether it's the degree of sell-off or where it started from and how far it's gotten. It really hasn't gotten that far. And comparing it to um, August 2020 shows you that this is not something that's a short-run trend. It's been going for eight months now, and that's as far as it's gotten. So when we think about reflation, we think about the inflation case, let's keep some perspective here about what's really going on, which is, as you say, the weakest reflation yet by far. And this is all coming from an article that was posted at Alhambra Investments on March 31st. That was called, How Does Reflation Look from the Point of View of the One Market That Gets It? Now we're going to look at another chart that comes from another article where you compare to other time periods just for you know additional context yeah if you really want to be depressed <laughs> oh great great it's no, let's look at the euro dollar futures curve throughout the entire 21st century and which in, we're supposed to be really excited about the sell-off that's way down there on the bottom right part of the chart that's supposed to represent some huge meaningful change in condition where we're moving into this absolutely firestorm of inflation uh, over the, well, whether it's a short run or the long run. And what the Eurodollar futures, the literal translation of the Eurodollar futures curve is that maybe, maybe if everything goes swimmingly, perfectly, awesomely, by the time we get to the middle of the 2020s, the middle of the decade, we might see three-month LIBOR somewhere around 1.75 to 2%. Um, and that's, again, that should be incredibly, incredibly underwhelming, considering just where, where the Eurodollar futures curve was thinking long-term LIBOR might be back in reflation number three, just a couple years ago, was thinking that, well, maybe we'll get up to 3%, maybe even higher, 3.5%. And now we're hoping by 2024, 2025, if we can manage or squeeze out maybe 
And you can find this chart in a March 31st article at Alhambra Investments, but this time the title is called, Yes, Curves Have Been Forced to Speak Japanese. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover about the Eurodollar futures curve that you wanted to bring up now? Yeah, when you, when you look at it in the long run like this, what you're really seeing is what I just said in the title, which is your interest rates continually falling, falling. And the reason they're falling is not because the Federal Reserve wants it to, as we talked about in terms of collateral in our, in our previous segment, there are other reasons why rates are falling that, are, that uh, the market, the Euro dollar futures market is saying, we keep observing these Euro dollar short, these global dollar shortages that come up. We keep observing the fact that the Federal Reserve has no idea what's, what it's doing, it has nothing to do with collateral or repo or anything like that, secured financing transactions, all the stuff that actually takes place in the market and as the euro dollar curve continues to shrink and shrivel and get lower and lower and lower to the point that the reflationary sell-offs themselves are so unremarkable that it's it's just it's remarkable how unremarkable they are and what that's really saying is yes we are we have become japanese in that the interest rates are low for a reason and it's not the reason that you keep hearing i was recent if we can't count on the federal reserve Perhaps we can count on Uncle Sam to help us. That's what somebody said to me recently. And they said, the stimulus, it's going to be inflationary. This is great. And I said, no, because this and this. And there was just silence in return. Now, I was confident in what I was saying because I know I had just seen uh, Lacey Hunt in an interview on Real Vision with Daniel DiMartino Booth. And he was saying the same things. He was saying, this is debt finance. We've seen it in Japan. But you know where else, dear audience, that I saw it? I saw it in an article that we're gonna cover in part three, data downgrading Uncle Sam's helicopter. So stick around for that. The Biden administration has made a big stimulus payment to the citizens of America. The Trump administration before that did the same. How is that translated into economic activity, consumption, income? We're gonna talk about that right now with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're gonna be discussing an article that you posted at Alhambra Investments on March 26th. The title was Data Downgrading Uncle Sam's Helicopter. I guess you're referencing the helicopter, the helicopter money, helicopter drops, and it sounds like you don't believe it's going to be uh, the stimulus that we need to prime the pump and get this machine moving. Yeah, I think that's, that's an important point to start with, Emil, is that the theory behind these things. Well, well first of all, I mean, look, the government paying people uh, because of what happened last year in the economy, let's, let's, I mean, that, that's probably needed to happen. It, in fact, it really did need to happen because – you know, the economy was broken through a series of miscalculations and through no fault of the, the, the poor workers who have been on the wrong end of this. So for the government to, to give them some sort of stipend or aid as a moral issue, there's no problem there. I think where we started to get into argument and debate and really pull this thing apart is, is whether we should call it stimulus or not. And the theory behind stimulus is, as you, as you alluded to, John Maynard Keene's pump priming was that, look, we, we throw some money in the economy and that 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 uh, while the economy is in recession to reduce the level of recession, to keep the contraction to a minimum until recovery takes place. And in fact, it helps recovery takes place because 
in theory, consumers are spending the money that get, they get, which helps helps the recovery process because you know uh, service providers have to provide more services, goods producers have to produce more goods for the for the spending, and that means they're going to start hiring again, and all of the recover the virtuous circle of recovery takes place because the government has injected all of this money into the real economy. That seems entirely plausible in a economy that doesn't suffer from permanent shocks or unit roots, which we've discussed before. And when we talked about it, we of course reference Milton Friedman, which we will again, when discussing positive economics and permanent income uh, thesis hypothesis, tell us a little bit about Milton Friedman and these uh, economic terms that I just referenced. Well, as you just said, first of all, before we get to that, I mean, uh, positive or uh, uh, permanent economic shocks are not something economists consider. And so for economists, the neo-Keynesians who are advising the Treasury Department about what they should do, they don't believe that there's any such thing as a permanent shock. And so to them, this is standard stimulus stuff. This is, hey, there's a recovery coming because the recoveries always come. And then oh, what happened in 2008? Uh, don't ask us. So for economists, Permanent shocks aren't aren't possible. So this is just standard uh, standard standard dogma where you know the government pays people, consumption goes back up, it's a, consumption rises more than it would have, and that starts off the recovery that they know, or at least they think they know, is always going to come or follow along. At, right, but now we're not having that because there was a permanent shock, and so. There's this sprinkling, these alms that are given, and consumers say, okay, I've got this windfall. I might spend some of it, uh, but you know, I know we went through a shock. I, even though I, I'm not a fancy mathematician and I don't even know what a unit root is, I know the world has changed, and therefore I'm not going to change my behavior because my income has been affected. And this is not going to assist us. And that was first brought up in 1957, right? Yeah, Milton Friedman came up with the permanent income hypothesis, which is really what you just described. I mean, people understand, they don't understand the data, or they don't pay attention to the data, they don't go into deep dives of econometric models or anything like that. But they certainly perceive for their own purposes what's going on in the real economy, especially the labor market. Because why the labor market? Because labor is your source of steady income. And even if you're not one of the unfortunate multitudes of millions who have been laid off and put out of work, you could still be infected because you, you hear your, your, your cousins talk about, your neighbors, your friends, they got laid off or they're worried that, you know, and it could also be that you, you think, well, I'm not going to get a raise anytime soon, or I'm not going to get a promotion, or I'm stuck at a job I hate. Any number of negative factors that, that you perceive that, that either you know, change your perception of what you should do as a consumer, or even interrupt all of the processes that you, you normally think about when deciding how to consume as a baseline. And that's really what Milton Friedman was trying to get at was, what does a consumption baseline or permanent consumption uh, curve look like? And what he said was, look, transitory, I can use, just use the word transitory, which you love around here. He used the word transitory, transitory income, either positive or negative, a transitory income, you know, a windfall or a job, a temporary job loss, something like that, doesn't actually change a consumer's permanent or, or uh, permanent consumption behavior because they, they treat it as, when it's the case of a positive payment, they treat it as a windfall. They realize I'm not going to get paid again 
So I'm not going to behave as if I'm going to get this money all the time. I mean, it, it's, it, it makes more intuitive sense than pretty much anything economists have ever come up with. <laughs> well, let me, let me read a quote of his. I, I think that's what you were just saying. Here, here's what he says. The, the purpose of these remarks is not to demonstrate that a zero correlation is the only plausible assumption. Its purpose is rather to show that common observation does not render it absurd to suppose that a hypothesis embodying a zero correlation can yield a fairly close approximation to observe consumer behavior. It's, a, it's complicated, but I think that's just what we were saying. Well, it's, it's the, again, the econometric statistical way of saying essentially that. But what he, what, what he really said there was essentially all of the problems with econometric models since then. What he said was there's no, there wasn't a zero correlation. And when he's talking about zero correlation, what he meant was transitory income and permanent consumption. What he said is, yeah, it's kind of a zero correlation, which is that you know people treat a windfall and they don't necessarily do much. They don't alter their, their, their consumption baseline because of it, but there's, it's not zero. It's non-zero. Maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room there. And into that little bit of wiggle room has charged all of the stuff that we see nowadays when, when economists said, well, maybe there are certain conditions where we can introduce a windfall and goose the multiplier a little bit by you know, quantitative easing alongside of it to make people feel happy about it. And so you know, Friedman was saying, yeah, it was, maybe it's not a zero correlation, but it's close enough to be zero that maybe you shouldn't count on windfalls as a way to really stimulate beyond any short run impacts. I'm quoting you. Friedman argued that it wasn't much. Later, especially neo-Keynesians like to fatten their multipliers considerably more. A good example is playing out right now before our American and European eyes. And I'm going to pull up a chart and you walk us through it, Jeff. It's about the income receipts and then without transfers and then consumption. Yeah, real personal income excluding transfers, the red line here, what that shows you is essentially private economy income, including proprietary sources, but mostly wages and salaries derived from, from work. The, the fat orange line is the personal income in nominal terms, which is includes every possible source, as you can see the big jumps up in, in 2020 and then again at the end of 2020, which were the Trump administration's payment. We don't have the latest one in the data. This is data just up through February of 2021. And if Friedman was wrong, then we would expect the dashed green line, which represents real personal consumption expenditures or PCE, would follow along more closely the orange rather than the red. But what you can see here is that it has followed the red almost exactly, which suggests, as Friedman said, that there is essentially there may be close to a zero correlation. Now, as we can see, in the, especially in January of 2021, it's not a zero correlation because that rise in spending in, in January definitely came about because of the uh, the $600 payment that the Trump administration ended with. So there are short run effects. But even here in the data, we don't see that much of a short run effect. And the fact that the spending follows income rather closely suggests further that for, for any, any more stimulus payments, including the $1,400 that's just been done, we might not, we might not, we, we maybe should downgrade our assessment of it because I don't think that Friedman was actually wrong, especially about the long run. 
in the longer, the intermediate and longer term, we shouldn't, there really isn't any correlation between short-term payments and long-run consumption. Let me quote you. This is and remains a highly sick economy that, not from COVID any longer, that cannot be fixed by transitory contributions. I've been saying that for a long time. I feel that what we need is a new social contract, a serious reevaluation of the relationship between businesses, the wealthy, regular households, and government, a, a new deal of some sort. And these, this tinkering is just not going to help. And, and I think that's what you're saying here, in a sense. I don't want to put words in your mouth. The overall issue then is entirely, quote unquote, stimulus and what to expect from it. Quite simply, not much, never much, as the data above shows once again, until the labor market is fixed, all else is just transitory conversation as well as small consumption. And it makes me think of the Hartz reforms in Germany. That was a social contract, a, re a recent successful social contract where there was a very large proportion of unemployed for Germany, 10% or so, and they instituted reforms, and now there's much less unemployment. Now there are costs for that, but the point is it can be done. It was done recently, but we need some sort of national agreement, conversation that there's something big wrong, not just uh, COVID, uh, trade wars. Yeah, there's much, much deeper problems here, and they're, they're, they're proving to be intractable. And as you know, Friedman already said, look, temporary transitory payments aren't, aren't going to do much for you outside the short run. And economists have said, well, yeah, that's the whole point. It's, it's a short run stimulus until we get to recovery. And so we have, to, we have to realize what Friedman was saying, as well as the fact that we have experienced permanent shocks. And therefore, the short run thinking, given the permanent shock, is it's just wait. We're wait, not just wasting money. We're wasting time, and time is the, is the biggest problem against us at this point. Is because this is not just a COVID story. It's not just a trade war story. This has been going on for a very long time already, and not just in the United States. This is a global problem, where suddenly growth just magically disappeared during the first global uh, global financial crisis. It's something we need to consider. And it's not something that um, governments anywhere, no matter how big of the checks they write, they're going to be able to get us out of it. As Lacey Hunt pointed out, that's look, Japan's been doing this much longer than we have. They've got 30 years of experience. If we draw upon it, we can't just ignore it because we think, oh, the Japanese screwed up because they're Japanese. We should look at the similarities, which are legion. And say, why are we? Why are we doing all the same all the same policies? Why are we following all the same uh, programs, and mimicking the results too, and and still not making the connection there? Well, Jeff, I very much enjoyed this particular episode. I know our audience is going to find it educational, hopefully entertaining, and uh, I wanted to thank you. And I'll talk to you again in a week. Yeah. See you next week, Camille.